Chapter Twelve of the Duel by Anton Chekhov, translated by Constance Garnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Next day, Thursday, Maria Konstantinovna was celebrating the birthday of her Kostya. All were invited to come at midday and eat pies, and in the evening to drink chocolate. When Laevsky and Nadezhda Fyodorovna arrived in the evening, the zoologist, who was already sitting in the drawing-room, drinking chocolate, asked Samoylenko, "'Have you talked to him?' "'Not yet.' "'Mind now. Don't stand on ceremony. I can't understand the insolence of these people.' Why, they know perfectly well the view taken by this family of their cohabitation, and yet they force themselves in here. If one is to pay attention to every prejudice, said Samoylenko, one could go nowhere. Do you mean to say that the repugnance felt by the masses for illicit love and moral laxity is a prejudice? Of course it is. It's prejudice and hate. When the soldiers see a girl of light behaviour, they laugh and whistle. But just ask them what they are themselves. It's not for nothing they whistle. The facts that girls strangle their illegitimate children and go to prison for it, and that Anna Karenin flung herself under the train and that in the villages they smear the gates with tar, and that you and I, without knowing why, are pleased by Katya's purity, and that every one of us feels a vague craving for pure love, though he knows there is no such love. Is all that prejudice? That is the one thing, brother, which has survived intact from natural selection. And if it were not for that obscure force regulating the relations of the sexes, the Laevskys would have it all their own way, and mankind would degenerate in two years. Laevsky came into the drawing-room, greeted everyone, and shaking hands with von Koren, smiled ingratiatingly. He waited for a favourable moment and said to Samoylenko, Excuse me, Alexander Davidich. I must say two words to you. Samoylenko got up, put his arm round Laevsky's waist, and both of them went into Nikodim Alexandrovitch's study. Tomorrow's Friday, said Laevsky, biting his nails. Have you got what you promised? I've only got two hundred. I'll get the rest today or tomorrow. Don't worry yourself. Thank God, sighed Laevsky, and his hands began trembling with joy. You are saving me, Alexander Davidich, and I swear to you by God, by my happiness and anything you like, I'll send you the money as soon as I arrive, and I'll send you my old debt too. Look here, Vanya, said Samoylenko, turning crimson and taking him by the button. 
You must forgive my meddling in your private affairs, but why shouldn't you take Nadezhda Fyodorovna with you? You queer fellow! How is that possible? One of us must stay, or our creditors will raise an outcry. You see, I owe seven hundred or more to the shops. Only wait, and I will send them the money. I'll stop their mouths, and then she can come away. I see. But why shouldn't you send her on first? My goodness, as though that were possible. Levski was horrified. Why, she's a woman. What would she do there, alone? What does she know about it? That would only be a loss of time, and a useless waste of money. That's reasonable, thought Samoylenko. But remembering his conversation with von Koren, he looked down and said sullenly, I can't agree with you. Either go with her or send her first. Otherwise, otherwise I won't give you the money. Those are my last words. He staggered back, lurched backwards against the door, and went into the drawing-room, crimson and overcome with confusion. Friday, Friday, thought Laevsky, going back into the drawing-room. Friday. He was handed a cup of chocolate. He burnt his lips and tongue with the scalding chocolate and thought, Friday, Friday. For some reason he could not get the word Friday out of his head. He could think of nothing but Friday, and the only thing that was clear to him not in his brain, but somewhere in his heart, was that he would not get off on Saturday. Before him stood Nikodim Alexandritch, very neat, with his hair combed over his temples, saying, Please take something to eat. Maria Konstantinovna showed the visitors Katya's school report, and said, drawling, It's very, very difficult to do well at school nowadays, so much is expected. Mamma, groaned Katya, not knowing where to hide her confusion at the praises of the company. Levski, too, looked at the report and praised it. Scripture, Russian language, conduct, fives and fours danced before his eyes, and all this mixed with the haunting refrain of Friday with the carefully combed locks of Nikodim Alexandritch, and the red cheeks of Katya, produced on him a sensation of such immense, overwhelming boredom, that he almost shrieked with despair and asked himself, Is it possible, is it possible I shall not get away? They put two card tables side by side, and sat down to play post. Levski sat down too. Friday, Friday, he kept thinking, as he smiled and took a pencil out of his pocket. Friday. He wanted to think over his position, and was afraid to think. It was terrible to him to realize that the doctor had detected him in the deception which he had so long and carefully concealed from himself. Every time he thought of his future, he would not let his thoughts have full rein. He would get into the train and set off, and thereby the problem of his life would be solved. 
and he did not let his thoughts go farther. Like a far-away dim light in the fields, the thought sometimes flickered in his mind that in one of the side streets of Petersburg, in the remote future, he would have to have recourse to a tiny lie in order to get rid of Nadezhda Fyodorovna and pay his debts. He would tell a lie only once, and then a completely new life would begin. And that was right. At the price of a small lie, he would win so much truth. Now, when, by his blunt refusal, the doctor had crudely hinted at his deception, he began to understand that he would need deception not only in the remote future, but today, and tomorrow, and in a month's time, and perhaps up to the very end of his life. In fact, in order to get away, he would have to lie to Nadezhda Fyodorovna, to his creditors, and to his superiors in the service. Then, in order to get money in Petersburg, he would have to lie to his mother, to tell her that he had already broken with Nadezhda Fyodorovna, and his mother would not give him more than five hundred roubles, so he had already deceived the doctor, as he would not be in a position to pay him back the money within a short time. Afterwards, when Nadezhda Fyodorovna came to Petersburg, he would have to resort to a regular series of deceptions, little and big, in order to get free of her. And again there would be tears, boredom, a disgusting existence, remorse, and so there would be no new life, deception and nothing more. A whole mountain of lies rose before Levski's imagination. To leap over it at one bound, and not to do his lying piecemeal, he would have to bring himself to stern, uncompromising action. For instance, to getting up without saying a word, putting on his hat, and at once setting off without money and without explanation. But Laevsky felt that was impossible for him. Friday, Friday, he thought, Friday. They wrote little notes, folded them in two, and put them in Nikodim Alexandrovich's old top hat. When there were a sufficient heap of notes, Kostya, who acted the part of postman, walked round the table and delivered them. The deacon, Katya and Kostya, who received amusing notes and tried to write as funnily as they could, were highly delighted. We must have a little talk, Nadezhda Fyodorovna read in a little note. She glanced at Maria Konstantinovna, who gave her an almond-oily smile and nodded. Talk of what? thought Nadezhda Fyodorovna. If one can't tell the whole, it's no use talking. Before going out for the evening, she had tied Levski's cravat for him, and that simple action filled her soul with tenderness and sorrow. The anxiety in his face, his absent-minded looks, his pallor, and the incomprehensible change that had taken place in him of late. 
and the fact that she had a terrible, revolting secret from him, and the fact that her hands trembled when she tied his cravat. All this seemed to tell her that they had not long left to be together. She looked at him, as though he were an icon, with terror and penitence, and thought, Forgive! Forgive! Opposite her was sitting Achmianov, and he never took his black, love-sick eyes off her. She was stirred by passion. She was ashamed of herself, and afraid that even her misery and sorrow would not prevent her from yielding to impure desire to-morrow, if not to-day, and that, like a drunkard, she would not have the strength to stop herself. She made up her mind to go away, that she might not continue this life, shameful for herself and humiliating for Levski. She would beseech him with tears to let her go, and if he opposed her, she would go away secretly. She would not tell him what had happened. Let him keep a pure memory of her. I love you, I love you, I love you, she read. It was from Achmianov. She would live in some far remote place, would work and send Laevsky anonymously money, embroidered shirts and tobacco, and would return to him only in old age, or if he were dangerously ill and needed a nurse. When, in his old age, he learned what were her reasons for leaving him, and refusing to be his wife, he would appreciate her sacrifice and forgive. You've got a long nose. That must be from the deacon or Kostya. Nadezhda Fyodorovna imagined how, parting from Levski, she would embrace him warmly, would kiss his hand, and would swear to love him all her life, all her life, and then, living in obscurity among strangers, she would every day think that somewhere she had a friend, someone she loved, a pure, noble, lofty man who kept a pure memory of her. If you don't give me an interview today, I shall take measures, I assure you on my word of honour. You can't treat decent people like this. You must understand that. That was from Kirillin. End of chapter 12